0: Hello, and welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. I am your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. As always, the High Reliability Podcast is brought to you by the Career Hub. Go to our uh, website, goslin associatescom to get more information on the Career Hub, to look at uh, some of the jobs we're recruiting for, to see p- past podcasts. There's a whole host of information there. So uh, go to our website, goslin associatescom I would like to welcome today to the High Reliability Podcast, Rick Sanders. Rick's the Director of Plant Operations, which includes safety, security, and clinical engineering at Poplar Bluff Regional Medical Center in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. Rick has 24 years of healthcare facility management experience with large organizations. Um, Prior to entering healthcare, Rick had a 21-year career in the Navy, so he's a Navy vet, and he's had experience in the Navy with steam propulsion systems, auxiliary systems, um, including HVAC, diesels, hydraulics, etc. Rick has spent seven years as a technical training instructor with over 20 years' experience with curriculum development and conducting presentations. Rick is a veteran of many construction projects, including project management of ship repairs and healthcare construction, including a $111 million expansion project. Rick has served as president of the Virginia Society of Healthcare Engineers in 2016 and 2017. He has his bachelor's, he has his master's, he has a CHFM. Rick, welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining.
1: Well, thank you, Peter. It's, uh, it's a great honor to uh, get online and to talk with you
0: yeah no I appreciate it we've been trying to get Rick on for a while and we finally did so um so i'm I'm happy to have him we were talking he and I were talking before I started to record the podcast and I said you ready to go and he said yeah he said it's just a day in the life of a facility director what did you uh when you came in this morning Rick what was the first so he's been in for about two hours already it's probably got in around six. What did you deal with first thing this morning when you got into your facility?
1: Well, we had about six inches of snow on the ground. So you got to start today with your companies that you hired to do the uh, clearing of snow and parking lots and sidewalks. Uh, Some places I've been at, we had our own staff doing that. So got to make sure that the area is safe for everybody coming in. And then, uh, Have a conversation with the clinical staff, the supervisor that was on shift last night to see if if there was any major issues or concerns and uh, do a quick little walkthrough of the emergency department and uh, C-suite and uh, other areas maybe not being occupied throughout the night just to see if there was anything unusual for the day.
0: (laughs) And thus the day begins. Now, I'm I'm, I'm a little bit of a, uh, not a little bit. I am a lot of a weather nerd. I love, uh, I love weather. I, I enjoy snow, so I just need to ask you a weather-related question, and I think you you alluded to it. So is your snow removal, you, do you outsource that as opposed to performing with in-house staff? Yes. Do your, does, your, um, does your snow removal team, and, and Rick, just for people, Rick, you started at Poplar Bluff relatively
1: recently, right? Yeah, I started here on October 10th.
0: October 10th. So the snow removal team, how would you, uh, how would you assess them? This is your first winter going through with them. Uh, are they, they meeting your standards?
1: Uh, second snow they're doing decently. Um, you know, everybody has their own level of what the expectations was. And I actually expected they'd be a little bit farther along than what I saw when I did my drive around this morning. So, uh, we're making the adjustments called the, uh, the contacts and said, okay, well, I don't know what we're doing, but we need to do a little bit more of it. <laughs> That's
0: good. That's good. I remember, so I'm, you know, I'm up here in, in New England. And I remember when I was working in healthcare, one of the things we did is we outsourced snow removal from the, um, from the facilities teams. And we had at the time of the, we had six hospitals and some were further North and further South. And so the hospitals that were further North always got more snow than the hospitals that were further South. And we outsourced the entirety of the, of the contract, and it was just interesting the way um, the southern hospitals would look at snow removal, as far as the northern hospitals would look at it. the The northern needed more ice melt; they needed they needed them on site more. Whereas f- further down south, it wasn't as you know, it wasn't as intense. And you know, that was one of the first things we did as a system was to to bring together snow removal. And you know, we found through error that not all snow removal is created equal depending upon where you are located. And as you know, you get slips and falls. That's a bad thing.
1: Yeah, I was in Maryland uh, on the Eastern Shore several years back when within two weeks we had 36 inches of snow. So now you wind up having to hire people not only to clean your area, but actually to uh, put it into big trucks and take it away to some other place. Yeah, absolutely. So I could. You're not a meteorologist,
0: nor am I, and we could keep talking snow, but we'll move on because uh, people probably don't want to hear about snow. Send your snow north to New England if you would like to. Um, I'd like to start though. You know, you mentioned again. I, I talked about. You said a typical day in the life. Is there? Is there these days? A typical day in the life for a facility director. You know, how I would you describe that, the
1: state of it? Yeah, I can't say that there's a typical day. I think everybody starts off with knowing what they want to get accomplished for the day, uh, whether it's personnel issues of uh, evaluations and some code compliance and uh, um, filing of documentation and some construction checks. But you know you have the day of what you really think you'd like to do, and then as soon as you show up to work or within the uh, first few hours, um, yesterday I had a uh, follow-up joint commission and then I had a uh, state surveyor come in, all both of them unannounced. so uh, it can everything goes to quite strange and you've got to be. Um, flexible but i saw one time a sign that said flexibility even has its limitations be fluid <laughs> i like
0: that <laughs> that's like an advanced degree but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> flexible to fluid i like that i'm going to have to uh, i'm going to have to write that down um i was uh, you know you, you you've worked it Five different large organizations. You've been involved at academic medical centers. You've been in the Navy, but specific to your healthcare, um, to your healthcare experience, when you go in to a new, um, when you go into a new system, a new hospital system, a new role, what do you do for those first couple of months? That first year, Rick, what is your strategy as far as analyzing, dissecting? You know, what's your approach to that when you start with a new organization?
1: Yeah, I had heard one time, somebody told me that the first 100 days, you really need to get a good feel for the organization, the climate of the people, uh, what are they doing, the safety related issues and all, and really don't make changes unless they really need to be because of a safety issue. So I've tried to go by that as I've gone into an organization Just get a good feel for the area. Uh, Sometimes that's great in concept, and within a week and a half, you're already in charge. Um, Somebody else has left, somebody else is sick, has gone down. So uh, if you had a manager or a supervisor, they're um, out of pocket for a while. So now you have to assume all those responsibilities. Also, Um, it's just always unique and different, but really getting a good chance to talk with the people both uh, staff that report to you the directors that you interact with and in c-suite just to get that flavor of how this organization is and uh, op- identify opportunities that to uh, uh, possibly tackle as you get more time
0: and how do you um, how do you approach it with? The staff that you're managing, um, you know, do, do you sit and talk with each of them, or what's your approach relative to that? And then sometimes you just alluded to it. Sometimes you, know, you want to sit and you want to um, you want to assess. But do you ever get an urge to act quickly, you know, to make a move because you just see something? And and how do you fight those urges and give yourself the time to to analyze, dissect uh, the new organization?
1: Well, I would go to the shop meetings with the supervisors, managers, let them run the meeting, but be there to, um, uh, hear what's going on. Uh, I think being approachable to staff is very important. Uh, if there are issues, uh, you know, they can talk to you. Uh, I like the chain of command. I guess it's my military days mm-hmm. or whatever, but, uh, I would hope that they've already talked to the supervisor and the manager about that. Later on, I think each day, I try to spend some time with my uh, leadership below me and just say, okay, what's going on? Somebody came to me. Let's talk about that. What do, What's the history? What do I need to know? Is this something? You know, I, I've tried to talk with my manager, supervisor, that I wasn't there to do their job, but I was there to help them to do their job. And But if they have to go like a knee replacement or a long-term illness, as we had through the COVID days, to be ready to step into that position and to be ready to step back out of it after the uh, leader returned.
0: So you mentioned your, you know, the chain of command and probably from your military experience prior to entering healthcare. as we said, you had a long career, distinguished career in the Navy, uh, 21 year career. Then you jumped to St. Jude's Children's Hospital, which was your first role out of the Navy. But what, going back to your naval experience, um, are there one or two memories from your naval experience that that you recall fondly or talk to us a little bit about that naval experience and, and some of the experiences you had?
1: I think one of the first things I realized is I'm not hiring these people that are coming to me, but I'm responsible to make it a functioning team with what is assigned to me and to educate them, to indoctrinate them into the new culture and organization they're at and to make them a uh, functioning team member. So that's one of the first things I, I just remember is developing staff Mm. to cover the needs that we had. And then I think the other part that I did was just uh, learning more about my leadership skills and how to uh, hone those in and how to work with uh, the influences. I realize military has a little bit more of a control factor, but it's better to try and get people to do stuff and and talk with them and their understanding and their willful to go do that than it is to, uh, uh, in the old days, we had to browbeat them to get something done. <laughs> so, um, I think just the development of myself and the development of others was the key, was a couple of key things I learned through those days.
0: How long did it take you? Uh, I mean, your self-development I'm sure is ongoing. It's ongoing for, for all of us, but- Did it take you a while to come to that realization of developing self or does that get kind of beat into you just being in the Navy and you you become being in the military, you you become self-reflective because you have to?
1: No, I think it's a part of growing up and um, I think some of it is just within you as a person. Um, I recall that even as I was in high school and stuff, I may not have been the leader there, but I had those desires to be a leader. Um, and through the military days, I mean, I was start off as a mechanic, um, replacing bearings and, uh, aligning fire pumps. But when an opportunity came to move to a lead or a uh, supervisor position, um, I looked forward to that. And I tried to uh, look for other leadership books or documents on how to be a good, effective leader. And then to take advantage of those opportunities and or the people that you report to, they see the leadership uh, potential in you and they will talk to you and say, okay, we have an opportunity. Are you interested? And, or sometimes you get said you're going to move up, but uh, (laughs) to take advantage of those and you'll always learn from the experience, even some training, some things I had had attended a training on, not knowing why I was even there and not interested. And probably within 10 years, I've used those skills I learned in that training. (laughs) Do you recall a trait do you
0: recall a specific training that that hit that where you're like, I don't know why why I'm here, and now you're using it all the time?
1: Oh, the funniest one is when I was in high school, I was not a math wizard, and I <laughs> well, had a nice. chance to go to an office procedures class at my high school because I didn't have enough kids in there, and it was going to be a math equivalent. So I went to it and I learned about filing different ways and inputting and typing. And, you know, one, it kind of got me out of a class. (laughs) That also helped me as I, at a couple of uh, places I went to, because I can type pretty fast. I can know how to organize a filing system. And so all that started working really well. And later on, I found out that uh, most of our technicians just want to do the work but they're not really interested in doing the paperwork. Yes. And I found out that, uh, well, if I take care of the paperwork and and organize things, they're a lot happier because then that saves them the time that they can do the technical work. And so that's how I found that it just was something uh, unobscured that would help me develop people later on and help me with my career path.
0: Yeah, it's very true you say that about, Typing, And, you know, when we were growing up, it was typing on a typewriter as opposed to on a computer. But I talk to people within our network all the time and they have to type reports. And if you're not a good typist, it takes a while. And when I'm talking to them, what they hate most about the role is that they have to type things because it takes them so long on that keyboard. Um And, you know, they're like, I I love going out in the field, but I hate doing the report because it takes me so darn long to get it done. So that's uh, that's ironic.
1: I remember as a leader in the military, we had to do the evaluations and you were evaluated on your ability to do an evaluation. And this was the days before computers. So I had to take a legal yellow pad, double space, write things out. Then go back in and try and find five and ten dollar words that (laughs) meant the same thing, and then you start scratching up everything. As soon as they started getting some computers or yeah, computers uh, into the areas on board ships, I really enjoyed it because I actually can type and keep up with my brain, who's busy (laughs) thinking all the things. The nice thing is I can do a long run. And if you find out that uh, it's not what you wanted, all you got to do is highlight it and delete it and start over.
0: Yeah, it's funny. You know, you talk about that. And I mean, Iver, it seems like it's the stone ages and it doesn't really feel that long. But I remember <laughs> like using a typewriter. Remember that white? Well, you had white out, but then you also had that the innovation that came along. And it seemed like the greatest thing in the world at the time. Where you could put like a, if you type something incorrectly on the typewriter, you could put like a little white thing there and you'd backspace and it would get rid of, it would get rid of the letter (laughs) that you wanted to get. And it seemed like the greatest innovation ever. And now it just seems like it's you, you're old and dated and it doesn't feel like it, but it's funny how far you've come when you think about those things. Oh, yeah. I hated the typewriter, you know. Uh, anyway, we're not here to talk about typewriting either, but um, <laughs> that's funny. I remember my high school typewriting class. I mean, you took those classes and it was a disaster. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you had also, you know, you had mentioned uh, prior to us getting on here, just that you had taken an honor flight from Missouri uh, into D.C. early, well, last year sometime. Yeah. What is the honor flight, Rick, and, and what, what did that entail?
1: Well, for us, the honor flight was, uh, it was primarily for World War II Korean uh, veterans, Vietnam veterans, uh, to give them a chance to go to Washington, D.C., to go to the various memorials that were there to, to honor them for um, the services that they provided, because a lot of people don't get a chance to go to D.C. and see that. Mm-hmm. It was a very fast. Uh, it was a twenty-four hours, so we had to bus to St. Louis, fly to St. Louis to DC. Get picked up on buses, make the rounds of the various places, um, get back, get back to um, the airport, and fly back to St. Louis, and then get into the buses and go back to Columbia. That's where we're doing it out of, um, and. It was just a great time. Um, they had handlers or people to help out the disabled vets, mm. um, but uh, it, it was all done with no cost to the veterans. Um, they have a lot of uh, fundraising to make that happen, but uh, I think it was it's very good to do that. And again, I I had lived in the D.C. area in Maryland, so I was quite a accustomed to that, but I, I I enjoyed the being honored to go on it and I actually enjoyed seeing the eyes and the hearts of the veterans who had served in Korea uh and Vietnam that they got the recognition I think that they'd been seeking.
0: How many of you were on the uh, were on that flight?
1: That flight there were ninety veterans plus yeah. the people that handled them.
0: Wow. Wow, that's great. That's great. So, did it all take place in like 24 hours, 36 hours? In
1: 24 hours. I was really tired. Yeah.
0: So, did you sleep on the, Did you, you slept on the plane?
1: I don't sleep on planes. I don't either. Yeah.
0: So, you didn't sleep at all?
1: No, I didn't sleep at all. So, I was quite <laughs> tired the next day.
0: Yeah. Well, well worth it, it sounds like. That's for sure. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit, how did you transition from your Navy career into healthcare? How'd you end up in healthcare?
1: Well, I found it really interesting because in the Navy, I went ahead and started, uh, I was doing, working in boilers and chillers and uh, air handler systems. So while I was, um, I was right before I was getting ready to make the change, I went to the local um, licensing bureau and got a stationary engineer license Uh, level one so that I could run boilers or chillers on the other side of the military. So when I made the transition, I interviewed at a place and the individual I was interviewing with made the statement of, you could do my job because of your qualifications. And then he directed me to a hospital who had made a leadership change and was looking for some people. So I went over there and uh, fortunately, got hired, and that was at St. Jude.
0: Pretty big organization to start your career with.
1: Yeah, and it's a great organization yeah. too. I really believe in what they do there.
0: So then, for you coming out of the Navy, you were just looking for that next opportunity. So, did you you kind of fell into it in in some way into the healthcare? I think
1: rate? in some way I did. I knew I wanted to go into healthcare. My wife is that was a red. Uh, respiratory therapist. So she kind of got me used to being at hospitals. And uh, as I was on an aircraft carrier and the various engineering aspects that we have on board there, I kind of likened it to working in a hospital and said, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's what I want to try and do is work in hospitals when I uh, make the transition.
0: What were, what were some of those, those, um, Challenges that you had in their transition were there trans- were there transition challenges and what, what were they if so?
1: The first one was trying to remember I was no longer in the military. <laughs> so what get, does that mean? What does that
0: mean that you were no? I mean I know what well, it, it means. It, it's but how, what is you, in
1: yeah, it's the way you handle people, and in the military, there's a little bit more of a direction and maybe ordering than it is to. Mm. Um, to have discussions with people and uh, persuasion. So, uh,
0: <laughs> nice, nicely put. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, I think overall, it, it is a mental thing for the individual, first and foremost. And then again, just learning the, we talked earlier about what you do when you go to a new organization, the transition from military to civilian was just one of those of trying to evaluate how the new my new norm works and how to function within it.
0: Yeah. Does how how long does that take?
1: I think it's various people. It'll take various times. It probably took me a good year or so. I would still find myself doing stuff that I had to uh do a quick correction on um sometimes you get that look from some co-workers when you're working and they just kind of look at you turn their head to the side and go you realize you're not in the military anymore <laughs> <laughs> but uh eventually it comes through i enjoyed my time in the military in the navy i enjoyed the places there's things i still miss about it but uh You know, overall, it was an experience. It was a place just like every other place I've been to. I enjoyed the experiences. I enjoyed the people Mm. uh, and the climate of the place. So um, I think you get used to doing that. And, you know, to me, I was fulfilled with what I did, but I knew that there was also another challenge that I wanted to go do.
0: That's what I was going to ask you, you know, just listening to you talk about your naval experience you, know, you you were in there obviously plus 20 21 years what was it that that compelled you to leave it if you enjoyed it so much and was it because you wanted a new challenge or or why did you decide to leave the navy
1: well i think for the most part something happens where you just get that feeling of it's time mm. and, and i don't really know what it is uh, my accumulation is um, i started having sailors that were old enough to be my children <laughs> uh, the social climates changed mm-hmm. um the focus of the military changed and uh the biggest thing was i have three boys and they were all getting ready to start or one was in high school the other were two were getting ready to go to high school and my wife uh Looked at me and, his, and said, you are not going to leave me with these boys going into high school because I know what hormones do. <laughs> yeah. So I would have had to go to a ship and uh, I just knew it wasn't right. So I, I, I had fulfilled my obligation, I felt. Yes. And it was yep. time to move on. And so I just knew it was that time to do that.
0: Yeah. One last thing about the Navy. You talked about the places you go. You went what was the what was your favorite place where you went with the Navy?
1: i have to say Singapore. Huh, how um, come? I love well one, I really like Chinese food and it was great to get authentic Chinese food. <laughs> uh Singapore is a very nice metropolitan area, equivalent to any other large city. Um, very clean. But it was just a nice experience with it. But a lot of the other places I've been to have had their own unique um, experiences with them. But if I had a chance to go back and visit frequently, I would probably go to Singapore. I just, I enjoyed it that much.
0: Nice. I like Chinese food as well. I've never had authentic, uh but I do, <laughs> I do like it. <laughs> um, so tell us uh just a bit about Your current role, Poplar Bluff, Bluff, excuse me, director of plant operations with the accountability for safety, security, clinical engineering. How do you, especially today, Rick, where there, as you said, you don't know what's coming at you day to day. How do you balance those multiple areas of accountability and management that you have? And how has your, if it has, how has your management approach had to change kind of as, as more and more, as the expectations become more and more and the funds to do the expectations become less and
1: less? Well, I think that, again, you come into to the organization with um, thoughts of what you want to get done today, uh, but I think you also go quickly into crisis management um, dealing with whatever the issues are. Uh, one of the things that I really felt, and it's taken me, it took me a while to do this, is to utilize my resources with the uh, staff that I have. It's not necessarily my job to do something that I've got a manager, supervisor, and staff to do. Hmm. Uh, so I need to make sure that my manager or my leadership that's underneath me. Uh, helps me to get those done, uh, to take it on and then to provide me some feedback about that. And by doing that, you get more, a better team approach. Uh, You're able to get more items done um, as you, I I guess, as you just continue to do that, um, you try to be the one that's looking at it from the 30,000 foot level, as some people say, just to make sure that all the different pieces here are working toward in the same direction that you need to. Um, you have to be very fluid <laughs> because you don't <laughs> know what's going to happen. You, to me, you have to anticipate change. You know, I come to work and sometimes you just go, okay, what is next? Because you just know it's going to be something that you didn't even think of. <laughs> um, and then continue to take a look at how things work and what needs to be tweaked. I see so many times where we maybe forget about it or it gets overlooked or we get too busy, <clears throat> and all of a sudden it now props up as a major issue. And now you have to focus all your attention on that. And I always have to ask the question, had I spent maybe 20 minutes, would that have alleviated this four-hour event that I just took my time on? And if so, then as we go through our our work days, our schedules that we have, because I know most facility guys are busy looking at the entire year on how we need to do what when but are there ways that we can take care of some action now that will reap benefits later on because we've handled that situation and it doesn't fester. Hmm. Um, I think you use opportunities to train your staff that helps them become more, um, responsible for what they have to do. And I think that, uh, give them the leeway, give them information, but don't try and tell people how you want it done, give them what do you want done. And then give them the ability to do that and coach them throughout the process. Now saying all that, that we can get caught up and we can do 12, 16 hour days. But I also have to say, you've got to value your home and your family and use them as your sanctuary from this. We're on call 24-7. I I know I am. But when I go home, try to leave the job here or try to minimize it so you can focus and get downtime in your home, doing your things with your family.
0: Hmm. Great, great advice. And I was going to ask you something along those lines. I was going to ask you how you go about, you know, you, you talked about, As you see things, you know, could you, if you spent 20 minutes, could you have saved that four hours? I'm sure as you walk your facility, especially, you know, being there, what, four months now with your technical background and just with your construction, you must see things all over the place that you're walking, you know, as you're walking. How do you, assuming that that's the case, how do you prevent not prevent. How do you make sure that you don't become kind of overwhelmed because as you know some people when they become overwhelmed that leads to inertia because they have so much. How do you balance that sense to get things done versus becoming overwhelmed? I guess prioritizing and making sure that you keep that balance so you can get home to your family and get to that sanctuary.
1: Well, I, I believe that as we wa- you know, to me walking around is one of the critical things. But if I continue to see lights light bulbs out in the corridor in different places, or I don't know how others are, but when I see three different colors of lights (laughs) in one corridor, how do we fix it? Because that actually, it's not the point that you're lighting the corridor. It's that you're making everything look uniform. Yes. But the question is, why am I finding this? Why aren't my staff or my leadership finding this and taking and handling it? So that to me is the opportunity to turn around and to have those conversations with one, my leadership and staff, of, we really need to do this. And uh, I think the more that we can get them aware of what others see, because I, I think it's the perceptions that most people don't really find value in, but it's the perception of how we Through what we do, the the way the walls look, the way the the lights are, the temperatures, we do have an impact on the HCAP scores. We do have an impact on patient um, care and and uh, critiques. Mm -hmm. We may not say specifically engineering didn't did or didn't do this, but if we make if we do these. Activities And I think I've been working on uh, making sure staff, my staff, understand whether you're security, biomed, maintenance, others, you are a caregiver. You just do it in a different way. And what we do supports the clinical, the physicians, the patients and the visitors that they know they've come to a place where they can be well taken care of. And we've done the best part we can do.
0: When you send the message to staff or when you not send the message, when you tell them that they too are a caregiver, is, how do they receive that message? To the, Do they know that they're a caregiver and how do they receive the message?
1: I think that you, when you first start it, you get the rolled eyes of, yeah, we're just maintenance guys. <laughs> um and, and I think there's a stigma from the from the years of the maintenance guy um just being there, just doing. Um but I think as we leaders continue to reinforce, I think they'll start they start believing it. They start hmm. understanding. Uh when you have C suites that even the way they discuss staff that everyone is a is an associate or is a caregiver then we start taking that as an ownership to healing through again our activities indoor air quality to me is one of the best ways that we impact patient care just by making sure our indoor air is where it's supposed to be at
0: so is um is is that is that um is that one of the bigger changes or what are some of the bigger changes that you've seen you know in your healthcare you know your 24 years of healthcare facility management is, is that one of the larger changes that you've seen the the um the acknowledgement that facility staff you know they don't work in the shadows they're actually part of the care team caregiving what are some of the bigger challenges Bigger changes, excuse me, that you've seen in your twenty-four years of healthcare.
1: Well, I think there is a growing social acceptance and understanding what maintenance does and how important we are. Mm-hmm. I think you are treated with a little bit more respect than I than I did in the past. But it also is uh, part of our responsibility to make sure that our our staff are. Uh, I don't want to hate using the word behaving. But Mm -hmm. you you can be a, um, you know, we're a service organization, we're a service department. And when we look to how do service departments work on the outside, uh, the plumbers, the pipe fitters, the air conditioning companies, we need to have some of those same attitudes here that are cut, that the people we serve are customers. And so we want positive impact on the customers. So I think that's a that's a changing dynamic. Um, the bad thing is, or the impact that we really have is just the lack of skilled technicians because I think somebody told me one time for every 10 that leave, we're seeing four to six come in. Yeah. Well, that, that really shortens us. Um, we're not seeing the experienced technicians come in but the bigger impact is, if we had more skilled people, then they would be developing and becoming our leaders within our organizations, and then those leaders are going to be becoming the managers and directors, and uh, having that impact, then you get more competition for. Directors and leaders in in not only hospital and the healthcare industry, but in others, but because there's that been that shortage, yeah. um, there's a lot more competition that you know like myself, I'd been approached probably ten times in the last year about going to another location, and I pretty well had the choice of it, but uh The right timing brought me here to Poplar Bluff. So um, we really need to work on that because who's going to come up and replace us? That that was one of the mantras we had in in the Navy was training our replacements. And that becomes our challenge now on who are we training to be our replacement for the time when we decide to go do something different.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny you, you mentioned that I was, um, so our, we're, we're located just outside of Boston in Walpole, mass. And I went down to Massachusetts maritime Academy yesterday. Um, they're, a uh, a, a college right along the, I'm sure you've been, your Navy yes. experience has brought you to, to New England. So they're right at the entrance to the, uh, Cape Cod canal in Bourne. And I was meeting with, um, I know their career development person, um, Marianne Richards, and I was meeting with Marianne and and Nancy down there kind of just talking about careers. And it was, you know, it's funny what you just said. They said to me, so they I mean, those Maritime Academy folks are great to come into healthcare facilities management, as you know, you know, they're they're not Navy, but they're, they're the ship background. But we were talking and they were telling me And this was funny. I thought it was entertaining. They don't have enough people to fill all the roles either. I mean, the demand for their graduates, they're not going to go into a management level, but they're certainly healthcare ready. Um, They were telling me that they'll have organizations that call them and they, they want more of their graduates. And they'll ask the Maritime Academy, what are you doing to get high school kids into the Maritime Academy. <laughs> so it's interesting. The demand is so great. Now organizations are asking the Maritime Academies, How do you get us more people? And you're right. You know, Rick, this is. Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast before. But, you know, in talking to the folks down at the Maritime Academy yesterday. Healthcare is up against pharmaceuticals. Manufacturing. You name it. Everybody's looking for these people. Um, and they're, as you said, they are difficult to find. And that challenge is only getting greater
1: yeah when I was in Virginia we started working with some of the technical trade high schools uh, in some of their programs and one of their programs was Skills USA and I had a chance to, uh, to attend a state and you know that those are some great programs. Mm. The problem and there's they're, they have a large amount of students going through their programs but they need more teachers so they can put more students through there. (laughs) And that's one of the biggest interesting situations we have because we need more students. But by the time they've already hit high school, their focus is going to a college. And a lot of those influencers are coming from the parents and all, so that when they get to high school and they talk to counselors, the counselors get them going to high schools, And we started talking about maybe what we need to do is go to the junior high level or the middle school level to at least try and get something there to introduce them into facilities and all. Yes. But, you know, I remember a lot of middle schoolers, including myself, that was the last thing I was going to do do in the future.
0: (laughs) That's the issue. I mean, we were talking about that yesterday. And, you know, they were talking about some of their students who are figuring out their career paths and getting on that path. Now, you talk to me when I'm in college, especially junior, senior year. It's all great, but I'm just not thinking about it at the time. So you're right. I mean, just the the age barrier, you know, you're not in in middle school. You're not thinking about when you're 25, 30 years old. You don't want I mean, and to be honest, I don't want my my kids. I have four kids. You have three. I didn't want my middle schooler thinking about their career path. You know, I wanted them out there having fun with their friends. So it's interesting, <laughs> but I guess there's some balance. I wanted to, um, you know, Rick, Rick, we could talk forever, but um, Rick's sure. got a, a meeting and I'm glad to get him in, but I want to ask him a couple of other questions. So we have a little bit of a heartbreak. You have, um, you have academic medical center experience as well. You've worked for some pretty big academic medical centers. Do you find, um, have you found that there's a difference working in, Academic academic medical centers versus non academic medical centers, and if so, what are they?
1: Well, I think the first thing is engineering is engineering, mm-hmm. so it's just bigger and more of them. So that part, yeah, that's just a little bit different, more challenges. Here, I have twelve elevators. There, at one of the facilities, I had seventy elevators. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you can have a yeah. whole lot more. But when I, what I've thought about is you have more people involved. Hmm. And so what I experienced is instead of like my job, I'm doing safety, security, um, environment of care, emergency management, biomed. At an academia, you're going to have somebody responsible for each one of those. Some of them may are going to be their own departments but one example was uh the safety department at one of the hospitals had two people and that's all they did was the safety Mm. aspect of it so you get more people it gets more it gets distributed uh farther out um your chain of command who you report to can become very complex um I would say you wind up working with a lot of higher educated individuals from doctors and PhDs. Uh, so a lot of times the emphasis will be on having a higher level of education mm-hmm. um, by the people that you interact with, your customers, and also for the expectations of leadership, even with their own departments.
0: Yeah. Boy, there's a lot there. There's a lot there we go into. Uh, that could be its old podcast, but I want to ask my guest, Rick Sanders, who's the director of plant operations at Poplar Bluff Regional Medical Center, Poplar Bluff, Missouri. Just a final question on um, this podcast. What advice, Rick, would you give to a person, military or otherwise, who's considering a career in healthcare facilities? So I guess, what advice would you give them? And then a, a question prior to that, are you pleased that coming out of the military, you made the career the career-altering choice that you did.
1: Oh yes, I didn't know what I was going to do, but uh, I don't think I would have ever thought about the path that I have taken. Hmm. Um, I enjoy what I do, and yeah, it sometimes shows. I think some people find that to be real sick about me. <laughs> but I will—I t- would tell anybody that uh, it is very overwhelming, but it is also very satisfying. Hmm. You'll never be bored. Uh, you'll be overwhelmed, like I said. But I would also say use every opportunity for what you do as a training and education and something to apply to uh, your, your career. Um, I've had to tell some people, uh, even if you don't get some educational support from your organizations, own your own uh, destiny, own the careers that you have. you may have to join one of these uh, organizations, professional organizations and pay for it yourself, but in the long long term it will be very much worthwhile. Um, I would say if you're going to be involved, get involved with the national and the local professional organizations because you develop relationships, you develop resources. Uh, You yourself can be challenged um, to get certifications that you maybe didn't even know about. Hmm. Um, To me, it helps improve your own personal leadership, which to me helps improve the relationship you have with uh, coworkers, uh, people above you your peers as the other directors. And, uh, you know, you're going to hit barriers. I will say that and I will forewarn warn people. You will probably be in your career path and you're going to turn a corner and find out that the bridge is completely gone and you're not going any farther. But don't take that as a, as a stopping point. You just have to find ways to get around the barriers and look for the barriers your progress. Look where you're going to go. And uh, it may not be right the first time, but uh, it will work out as long as you have a positive can-do attitude.
0: Great advice. Rick Sanders, thank you for your time. We could keep going, but I know you got a roll, So I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you making time to speak with me today. Best of luck going forward.
1: Thank you, Peter. I, I enjoyed the opportunity. I hope that it uh, resonates with uh, some of the people that listen to you. And I can only wish for the very best of them as they decide uh, the direction that they want to take in their careers.
0: Excellent. I appreciate that. So, Rick Sanders, thank you. This is Peter Martin from Goslin Martin Associates. We will be back with another episode of High Reliability. As always, thanks for listening.